Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Welcome once again to Americans Watching the Footy. Whatever day it is, whether it's morning, arvo, evening, we're glad you're joining us because we just love the footy. Thanks, Castle. I am Benjamin Castle coming to you once again from the basement of Morrison Hall in Berkeley. And I'm Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco. We're a couple of unique individuals, and tonight, you know, we're going to engage with our minds and our hearts. We're going to exchange ideas, thoughts, and even our energy. We're not always going to get it right. But that's okay, because just like you, we care. We actually got to exchange some ideas, thoughts, and energy in person today, earlier this afternoon, but didn't line up to be able to record together in person, so once again, we're doing this remotely. Thankfully, though, I'm only a couple weeks removed from graduating, and after that, we'll be back in person again, definitely starting around round nine recap. But we've got a lot to get to here in round seven, so let's not waste any time starting our discussion of the Friday night opener. West Coast 8-8-56, defeated by Richmond 25-15-165. Really, not much to say other than mirroring my comments from this round preview. The Tigers wipe off this stadium with the Eagles. Is there anything more to say? Actually, there is a lot more. So, Ethan, as the non-Eagles fan, what are your takeaways first off? This is definitely the closest I've watched the Eagles. I mean, I've watched some of their other games, but I really focused on the Eagles. I'm sorry. You know, round one was more watching the Suns. Round two, that wasn't the Eagles. That was the Waffle side, and I was actually pretty inspired by how they played. But this was bad. Aside from Luke Stranatica getting his first goal and Josh Kennedy getting to 700, this was embarrassing. It's one thing for a team to look old and dried out. Like that man right there. But they looked so unorganized and out of sync. It was as if it was their first ever practice together. I couldn't believe it. The lack of communication in the offensive end, the awkward spacing, the inability to get on the same page with handballs. It was awful. And it was embarrassing. And this would have been embarrassing in any situation, but to do it as a Friday night game, I think that just puts even more emphasis on it. And hopefully it helps more and more people within the club realize that it's time to do a full rebuild. I will say I'm really glad Kennedy got a 700 because it was something for the fans to enjoy on a night where there was very little to enjoy. And it's just sad to see a place that's had such passionate crowds be so flat because as good as Fremantle is right now, and we'll get into them later, they said on the broadcast, Perth is an Eagle sound. And it sucks that they're so irrelevant and so bad because it's better for the league when they're at least competitive, and this was nowhere near competitive. 
Kennedy was one of the only players on the ground who I thought gave a consistent effort throughout. One of the only veteran pieces, because I think Stradatica and debutante Greg Clark were the only ones who really consistently provided energy that Brett Kirk would enjoy. I'm honestly wishing they had that waffle side again because I think they would have put up a better fight. I was just really disappointed in the effort a lot of players gave. I didn't think Willie Rioli gave it anywhere near his all. Yes, he apparently went down with a hamstring injury, but I don't think it's that serious. Liam Ryan also got injured, but I don't think he's giving it 100% either. And I think his four touches reflect that, even though he kicked a goal and a behind off of that. I think that a lot of players who have seen success with this team are just feeling down and out about this season. And I get that they feel that way, but they can't have that reflect in how they behave on the Oval because this was inexcusable in so many ways. There are only really a few players that seemed like they actively cared all night. Thankfully, Clark had a pretty inspiring effort on a night where it was tough to get many game-long positives. He had 24 touches, six tackles, four clearances, gained 428 meters. The defenders were active, but that was because they had to be. Luke Shuey did a lot going through the middle. Looking at the stats and just looking at who gained ground and who got the most points, I think a lot of it is just a matter of who they tried to function through rather than who actually performed the best. It's hard to take away any whole team positives from this one. Consider that Tom Lynch kicked seven goals and could have easily had 12. He missed five relatively easy shots. He ended up also with 14 marks, team high. Only player with more was Jack Redden with 15. By ranking points, Lynch was top on the ground, followed by Jay Bolton. Yes, the Tigers played well, but that was not the impression I got out of this game. Because frankly, they could have been much closer to 200 points, even with taking their foot off the gas late. It was just so lopsided. And I've seen some blowouts. I've seen some bad games. But there was something just extra terrible about this, where the Eagles just looked extra dysfunctional. They had all of the dysfunction of an expansion team on their first day of practice with none of the youth. So this was just about a full-on disaster. We'll note that it was a milestone night for Lynch. It was his 200th game, and he got his 400th goal, ended up being very fittingly carried off. One positive I did notice for Richmond was Morris Rioli Jr. He finished with three goals, played a really nice second half, and just awfully cool with multiple members of his family on the field. They're basically a royal football family at this point. So to have three of them on the field and for one of them, the least seasoned of them, the youngest of them, to have that much success was really cool. This was the first ever three Rioli AFL game. And so I'm glad that one of them managed to grab the spotlight, especially this young in his career, as you said. Three Riolis, but zero Lockies. Very unusual. Another positive I'll note is that Damian Hardwick shifted around his lines a little bit, and they worked. Noah Balta and Liam Baker went back in defense while Jaden Short went to the midfield, and they seemed to flow very well. Short has been someone through whom Richmond have operated a lot this year, and having him in the middle of the ground may maximize his potential. Of course, you still have to take all this with a grain of salt because it's against the Eagles, so I'm really interested in seeing if those changes stick. There are a lot of things you could try to take away from the Tigers here, but this would be like trying to compare the Los Angeles Rams if they played against Burlingame High School. What's going on with the Eagles right now reminds me of a cautionary tale, and it's one that comes from baseball. The Philadelphia Phillies finished 82-80 and in 2021. That is their best record in a decade. It was their first winning record in a decade. They constantly have one of the top payrolls in the league, 
but they've sucked for a full decade. They were a great team in the late 2000s, could have easily won more than one title, ended up with one out of a pretty good run, but then held on to this aging core way too long. And if the Eagles do the same and try to relive their glory days instead of do the right thing and pack it in, it could be a very long time before they're good again. Hopefully their management is smart enough. Reminds me a little bit of the San Jose Sharks situation as well. They did not get a championship, losing in the Stanley Cup final in 2016, but it was clear that some of their best pieces from that were over the hill, but they held on to them largely for sentimentality, and it stunted their growth. And that's a problem that has continued even when most of those players are gone now. And hopefully a couple more of them get bought out. What concerns me is that Adam Simpson has completely avoided using the word rebuild thus far. Judging by the Eagles' history and the fact that they're rarely ever this low, I believe this is actually the first time that they've been in 18th position after a round. So this is at least the first time they've been in last place since 2012. It seems like they're not a team that's conducive to packing it in and being willing to reset. But I think the fan base would understand. They got their flag. They had a hell of a decade where they were consistently one of the best teams in the league. But they've got to move on from that. They've got to find a new identity. And the sooner, the better. Because I think they do have some good things in the pipeline with a few pieces. I like what I saw from Clark and Stranatica. Liam Ryan and Willie Rioli are in their mid-20s. Oscar Allen, if he can get healthy again, has real potential. But they've got to build around those new pieces rather than try to supplement the old ones. And honestly, I would be more than happy for the Eagles list management to ask some of those players on the older half of the list, hey, are you looking to go to another team? Are you looking to go to a fly contender? Because I think you might be able to get some assets, specifically some draft picks out of that. I remember seeing a discussion on Twitter about Andrew Gaff potentially fitting Fremantle style. Would it feel a bit traitorous? Maybe but it might also be better for both clubs in the current situation to try to entertain a move like that. Losing Tom Barash shortly before game time to injury left a gaping hole that they could never overcome defensively, and it let the Tigers really fatten up on percentage. And it makes you wonder, are teams going to have to fatten up on percentage against the Eagles? Are teams going to kind of be in an undesirable position where it's like, we want to be nice, but also we need to run up the score. I think that's a very unfortunate possibility. Running up the score has never really been a problem in the AFL because of the importance of percentage. So I don't really think there's going to be any hard feelings from any team that runs up the score against West Coast. It's what they have to do to put themselves in a better situation. And as tough as those margins are going to be to swallow for the Eagles fans, quite literally, Sucks to suck. I hope that the Eagles can give some of the old guard a nice send-off as the rest of this season goes on. Considering that this season is a wash, I think they can take a couple games, designate them to send off certain players that are worth that, and give them a nice ride into the sunset before the impending overhaul. Moving on from a team who's past their prime to a game between an old but still competent squad and the hot young thing. We started off the Saturday slate. We're still Friday night here in the U.S. with Geelong hosting Fremantle. Fremantle winning this one by three, 69-66, 10-9-69 to 10-6-66. A rare road win for the Dockers at Geelong, along their third ever win at Cardinia Park. Easy to say that this was the Dockers' biggest result at the venue since their 2013 qualifying final victory. They ended up making the grand final that year, and 
While we can't promise anything of the sort this early on this season, getting a win at such a tough ground to play away ended up being a testament to some of Fremantle's greatest strengths, particularly their defensive formation that really stymied a lot of the Cats' progress and made them second-guess themselves a lot, going all the way from the back. The Cats went scoreless for more than a quarter and a half from... Brad Close hitting the post very early in the second quarter until Reese Stanley's excellent mark and goal with seven and a half left in the third. Over the course of that span, the Dockers had gotten out to an 18-point lead and went up by as much as 23 before the Cats made a couple of late pushes. Fremantle's defense in this game was outstanding. Even without a few key pieces, their defense reminds me of a basketball team running a full-court press where there's no room to breathe anywhere on the floor. Same deal here. It was especially highlighted by a couple of sequences where the Cats basically couldn't find an open man beyond their own 50. And I was just super impressed by some of the more supplemental pieces for Fremantle. There were a lot of people talking about Blake Akers because he did have a really nice game, finished with 27 disposals, 675 meters gain, and a goal. But we knew that he's a good player. He took his game to a new level on this afternoon. But I thought there were a couple of guys who really stood out to me. First off, Griffin Logue, who was tasked with Jeremy Cameron and managed to hold him goalless, which is nuts. In fact, managed to hold him without a single score. I thought that was somewhere that the Cats would be able to thrive, not having to deal with a serious tagger. I thought that was a mismatch in Geelong's favor, and it got completely flipped the other way. And while his stats haven't been great outside of that opening round win over Adelaide, I thought Michael Frederick played really well. And he did end up with two goals, but he only had 10 touches. But his pressure is so good. I think he's one of the best defensive forwards in the game. And it created a lot of the sequences that held the Cats scoreless for a quarter and a half, such as the really bad Jake Kolejashny turnover that led to an Akers goal shortly after the one by Stanley that had ended the drought. I thought this was a winnable game for the Cats. I will give one big disclaimer here. I think if this is a night game and the Cats come out with the start that they did, kicking 5-0 in the first quarter, leading by as much as 18 early, I don't know if Fremantle's able to respond. I think there's an intimidation factor to playing at night, especially at Geelong. And I think that maybe with this being in the afternoon, crowd's not quite as hostile, gave the Dockers a chance to respond. And I think Patrick Dangerfield's absence was definitely significant against the pressure. But look, Fremantle was obviously pretty shorthanded too. Playing without Sean Darcy, Lloyd Meek did a great job filling in. And playing without Matt Taverner, but they still managed to get enough out of their forwards, not just scoring-wise, but pressure-wise. As I said, their forwards defended really well. But the combination of Frederick, Logan, Meek, all playing above their expected level really added up. And unfortunately, despite another really good game by Tom Stewart with some eye-popping stats and a great performance from Tyson Stengel, there were some obvious weaknesses for the Cats. Ollie Dempsey struggled in his second game, understandable. Sean Higgins wasn't as bad as he's been, but still not good. I thought it was a really difficult game for Jake Kolejashny. Unfortunately, another rough timeout for Brian Myers. And Brendan Parfit really struggled as well. There's only so much a defender can do. Unlike Tom Stewart, despite gaining nearly a kilometer and having 40 touches, is a prevent guy. He can create opportunities up the ground, but far more opportunities were coming his way. And this was just a game that really impressed me from the standpoint of Fremantle as a full unit. I wasn't really sure on what to think of Justin Longmuir coming into this year. People were saying that this was a year where we'd really able to see what his tactics can do and what his list formation can do. And lo and behold, they have more than paid off 
definitely credit to me for holding his own. It was only plus eight to the Cats in hitouts, but it was plus seven Fremantle in clearances, and a whole bunch of guys were part of that. Meek himself, David Bundy with seven for the Dockers that led them. Jordan Clark, Sam Switkowski, and Darcy Tucker with five as well. So everybody was getting involved at the stoppages. They had a lot of speed going out from there, thanks to guys like Clark, like Sarong, Rayshaw, Brody. Just a whole lot of good running midfielders that are able to create opportunities for them. I think we can establish that Fremantle are obviously a finals caliber team. We said that in our preview. I think now you can start to think about them as a top four caliber team. I don't know where you'd rank them in comparison to the Cats. I think if these teams played five weeks in a row, we'd get five great games. I think if they played 100 times, Fremantle would probably win about 55 to 60 of those, but they would be largely really entertaining matchups. You could argue any of the Swans, Lions, Saints to be better than Fremantle, to be overall better than Fremantle. But aside from Melbourne, the Dockers are the best defensive team in the competition. I don't think there's any debating that at this point. Their defense is outstanding. And that helped hold Geelong scoreless for a quarter and a half. And the Cats also did a lot of little things wrong, wasting inside 50s. Myers, Hawkins, and Close all settled for behinds on shots they could have converted. That's 15 points that the Cats left out there on relatively easy kicks. Inside 50s for the game favored the Cats 54 to 47. And if you're getting shut down for a full quarter and a half, you've got to make the most of your chances. If you're playing a dominant game, you can get away with doing some of the little things wrong. But you can't get away with both an inconsistent performance and not finishing when you're playing well. You can have one or the other, but Geelong had both. The efficiency, 35.2% for Geelong. Their average for the season thus far is 48.6. Fremantle were a little below their average as well, but nowhere near how low the Cats were running. And I think that stat is enough to explain why Geelong were on the losing end of this. Though it doesn't explain the margin. Credit to Geelong for staying in it the whole way, for staying with Blitzovs, driving a lot of their offensive output, but they didn't make their chances count. And at the end of the day, that's why the four points evaded them. I thought multiple times this game was out of reach. Lockie Schultz scoring to put the Dockers up 23 with 17 minutes left. Beyond one leading to a Michael Frederick goal with five and a half left to make it 69-53. And the Cats still had a couple of chances late. I thought Stengel displayed not just his great sense around goal, but tackling ability that I had not seen in him in his prior games. And Mark Blitzovs had a really nice outing. 20 disposals, 20 hitouts, and a couple goals. I thought early on when he kicked a goal to make it 18-0, I thought, oh man, if someone other than Hawkins and Cameron is actually an accurate kick, good luck. He also had a really nice kick from just beyond 50 to put it back within three points right near the end, but by then, too little, too late. Sam DeConing also played a decent game. He had one bad turnover that fortunately only led to a behind, but I thought he played well overall. This is a tough game to synthesize from a Geelong perspective because you had some matchups that you thought would go well individually that didn't, such as Logue versus Cameron. You had some poor individual performances, but you also had some great individual efforts. And it's tough to lose a home game, especially to an out-of-state team. Four and three is not an ideal place to be with top four aspirations, but the Cats do have the good fortune of playing what are pretty decisively, as of now, the two worst teams in the competition twice each. The schedule does get a bit more generous in the coming weeks for Geelong. They're going to need to take advantage of that because while I think this is a very solid team, 
they're going to have to show me something more to show that they can really run with the best of the best. And there aren't too many chances left for this core to win another flag. I remember you remarked to me when we were talking about this game at the end of the Saturday action that this was the first time you had really seen a team make Geelong look old. That's true, and yet they still managed to have that late push. And they are a team that's gotten older while most of the t- while pretty much every good team around them have gotten younger. Reminds me of some of the New York Yankees teams after they won their championship in 2009. The team's colors also help in that regard, I think. But this is a team that is definitely finals caliber, but I'm really starting to doubt whether they have it in them in terms of stamina, in terms of being able to innovate, in terms of being able to counter their age and work through that against the top sides and bring them the results they need. Clearly, they've been able to do it with an old core in the past, but there's just something about this team this year that is making me doubt them more than the past couple. Hopefully, Joel Selwood becomes a Ray Lewis-like inspirational figure, sort of like what the Ravens did in 2013. One thing to watch out for is if there are greater health concerns coming out of this game than there already are. As of the time we're recording, Rory Bob, Blake Akers, and Travis Collier are all in COVID protocol for females, so they're going to miss next round, though it shouldn't hurt them. They're playing North Melbourne. But I'm wondering how many doctors this will affect, and if any cats end up copping it as well. Also of note, Reese Stanley was hobbling late, so that may leave Blitzobs to deal with the GWS rock attack by himself, although that could lend itself to a return for someone like Esava Radagulea. Hopefully, Reese is all right. We did just learn during this recording session that Max Holmes will have to have surgery on his ankle after suffering a syndesmosis injury in the first quarter. He was subbed out for Luke Dollhouse there. All right, we've gone on really long about these first couple games as it was the teams that we are emotionally invested in. Moving ahead, there was another game that was just about concurrent with Geelong Fremantle that got far less attention, but might have been the most stunning result of the round, considering not just the winner, but the margin. GWS posting a 59-point win over Adelaide, and frankly, that score makes it look a lot closer than it was. Adelaide, 8-6-54, defeated by Greater Western Sydney, 17-11-113. Had this exact game been played at Giants Stadium with the same result, it would have made a whole lot more sense to me. But to see the Crows this soundly beaten at home is especially alarming. Everything that the Crows had going for them so far this season, they lacked in this contest. Their midfield, which had been running so well with Ben Keyes leading the way, were very unclean, their ball handling. I remember Keys fumbling quite a few times, and defensively, they were extremely poor, and that, in turn, made their back lines look really bad. I was singing the full back lines praises last week, but Dude, Brampton, but they didn't have the support in front of them to be anywhere near as good as they were last week. Meanwhile, the Giants weren't ridiculously accurate, but they had very good pressure, and they got scoring from sources that wild. You expect Toby Green to get four. You expect Harry Himmelberg to get two. And honestly, you might expect him to get more. But Stephen Cadelio and his eyebrows combined for three. And Lockie Whitfield, where have you been, had three. Leon Cameron played him forward, and he was able to use his finishing ability very much to his advantage. Wondering if we're going to see that move stick. 
Jesse Hogan also had three, but he also had as many behinds. It was a disappointingly inaccurate night for him, despite everything else he was able to do. This is the second straight year the Giants have gone into Adelaide and absolutely clapped the Crows. In round seven, the Giants beat them by 67 last year. The difference is the perception of that Crows team versus the perception of this one. I think at this point, this helps establish that the upside is clear for Adelaide, but the floor is still quite low. And I think this is kind of going to be defining for them. I don't think they're going to completely vanish and fall off like they did last year. I think their upside is more sustainable, but there are going to be some games where they're just really inconsistent right now. On the right day, they can beat just about anyone. And on the wrong day, they can, well, they can do this. Some people say the sky's the limit for some teams. However, for Adelaide, I think right now the ceiling is the roof. And there is a roof at least over Marvel Stadium. The Crows also couldn't create from their back lines at all. And they were also minus five in clearances where that had been a real strength from them previously. Credit to the Giants for getting on positive end of that themselves. Their midfield is obviously very talented, but I guess it still surprised me nonetheless. And Braden Proust with another fine game of the Ruck as well. 34 of the Giants' 49 hitouts with Matt Flynn getting the other 15. The Giants ended up plus 17 on the hitout counter. The question is, was this a flash in the pan? Or did this prove that Toby Green fucked the Giants over by earning himself that stupid suspension? I think a lot more will be revealed next week. They host the Cats in Canberra. That should be a very telling game for both sides. But aside from maybe Richmond Collingwood, maybe Power Bulldogs, I think this is the game of the round. You could argue any of those three. I think with the context of what GWS did this week, that really becomes the most important game out of round eight. And unlike those other two games you mentioned, Giants-Cats will have no other games running up against it. So all of footy fandom ought to have their eyes on that one. Meanwhile, the Crows have the fun task of heading to face Carlton, and their mistakes may only compound from there. Though the Crows did win the fourth quarter by 13 points, but I don't know whether to mark that down as a positive for Adelaide or negative for Greater Western Sydney. I'm leaning more toward the latter because GWS have not won the fourth quarter in the last 12 games. I think that doesn't mean shit. I think the Giants had made their statement. They led by as much as 79. And at that point, they were in cruise control. They were able to put some of their best players on the bench more. And psychologically, they had accomplished all the goals they needed to. Unfortunately, the Crows also lead this contest with a double concussion blow. Brody Smith concussed himself on a huge mark in the third quarter over Harry Perryman. I hope he's able to remember that grab because it was excellent. And then Ned McHenry was also concussed at some point as well. I mentioned in our last episode, our round preview, that if you're a Crows or a Giants fan, hopefully that game is decided by then because Melbourne and Hawthorne should be a cracker of a contest. And it was. And it was. It was a compelling matchup for a host of reasons. And even though it almost got out of reach in the third quarter, the Hawks were able to pull things back in, partially thanks to Melbourne's inability to finish. But I think the 10-point margin is a relatively accurate indication of the competitiveness of this contest throughout. Melbourne wins it 13-13-91 to 11-15-81. Even with five players in COVID protocols and Simon Goodwin unavailable, the Demons still did a lot of their same stuff, playing another great third quarter, this time outscoring the Hawks by 19 in that stretch, allowing them to get up by as much as 33 at one point. 
though Hawthorne did, as usual, start hot. They could have been up a lot more than 23-8. They had a 12-0 lead just two minutes in, and the Hawks ended up losing by just 10. They made it interesting, and I think they earned a lot of respect. They actually only trailed by nine at one point in the third before the Demons really jumped out and opened up that lead to 33. Melbourne definitely took advantage of having some guy named Max gone compared to Max Lynch. I'm wondering how much Ned Rees could have contest had he got in. Melbourne, Melbourne dominated the hitouts, nearly doubling up Hawthorne in that regard, 42 to 22. Clearances a lot closer, but gone in general did a good job getting them to advantage, and that sprung a lot of opportunities for one of the best midfields in the competition, if not the best. And Max helped his own cause with nine clearances himself. Gon didn't just get the better of Lynch in the center circle. He was all over the ground, finishing with two goals, the 29 disposals. This was vintage Max Gon, where he looked like the same sort of guy he was during the finals last year, where it seemed like there was more than one of him on the ground because he was just covering every possible inch of grass. It was the sort of performance that he needed to bring with Luke Jackson out and with Finn McGinnis, who was originally going to be out of the squad, but then got brought back in after Harry Morrison ended up injured, shutting down Ed Langdon. Langdon finished with just nine touches in the behind. However, Ben Brown got four goals. Toby Bedford, who finally actually got to play instead of be the injury replacement, got two. Tom McDonald got a couple. And though Bailey Fritch only had one, I thought his presence really created a lot of space for the rest of the forwards because Hawthorne had to pay so much attention to him. Fritch's six score moments, I think, reflect some of his activity. And at times, Hawthorne did well on a couple of the midfielders. They had to switch around those matchups a little bit because of injuries. Initially, you had Connor Nash on Clayton Oliver and Jager O'Meara on Christian Petraka. And after Nash did so well on Petraka, he ended up switching to Oliver. But then he got injured, and then they had to move things around again. Jai Newcomb ended up going on Petraka, and I think that was a good call given Newcomb's running ability. James Warple was left with Clary at the end of all that. But as much as you can try to match up against one of the Melbourne midfielders, it's impossible to neutralize all of them. Oliver with 33 disposals, 7 marks, 5 tackles, and 5 clearances. Only managed to behind, but scoring isn't where he makes his greatest impact. Petraka did get a goal. Good to see from him, considering his inaccuracy toward goal for a part of the season. Kicked 1-1 as part of his 31 disposals. And Angus Brayshaw, though he doesn't always play as a midfielder, gets moved around a fair bit, actually. Has 26 disposals and 10 marks of his own. Also notice Jake Bowie playing more and more up the ground. He ended up with 21 touches and 5 clearances himself. Not surprised to see Bowie going more toward the middle this round with Melbourne's defensive lines replenished. And Jake Bowie has still yet to play at a loss. He is 14-0. The streak started for Melbourne when he came into the side. And caretaker coaches are now 6-0. Congrats to Adam Uze. Couple other stats to round this one out. Dylan Moore with another quality game for the Hawks. 33 disposals and 11 marks. He's having a far better year than Dylan Moore, the baseball player. Stephen May finished with 687 meters gained and 20 disposals. Overall takeaway for me from this one was just the inevitability of Melbourne doing what they do. They did a better job weathering the early storm than most teams have against Hawthorne. And then, as they always seem to do, turned in a great third quarter. The Hawks did have some opportunities that they didn't finish particularly well. But overall, this was not a game that the Hawks lost. They actually put up a very quality performance. This was just 
the demons winning and doing what they do and continuing to be an inevitable machine. At some point, they're probably going to lose a game. 22-0 and would be an incredibly tough ask. Their schedule is going to get significantly tougher in the coming weeks. They got the Saints next. That should be another hell of a game. But unless they inexplicably struggle a ton against top teams instead of just do their usual thing, but to a lesser extent, this is clearly the best team in the league. A bit of a concern that Melbourne couldn't finish this game off, ended up kicking just four behinds in the fourth quarter, but both teams had opportunities that evaded them. That's clear based on just the goal to behind numbers for them. The opportunities were certainly there for Hawthorne as well, but they needed to be tidier. They needed to handle the ball better. I really think Hawthorne could have gotten over Melbourne had they cleaned up some of their handballing. It's clear that Sam Mitchell knows what he's doing, and I think this game was more of a matter of the players for Hawthorne just not getting the right touches at times. I have one idea why Melbourne wasn't kicking very accurately in the fourth quarter, maybe because they were missing a bunch of forwards. That's why I take that with a bit of a grain of salt, but it is something that has been an issue for them in a couple games, even when they have been at full strength or close to it in their forward lines. But overall, that was a very well-played game in very good conditions, and it delivered in pretty much every respect. St. Kilda and Port Adelaide delivered in terms of being a close contest, but you cannot say that it was a tidy one at all. We're going to take our quick ad break before we get to that one, but stick around because this was a shit show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whether this is your first or 19th time listening, thank you for tuning in to Americans Watching the Footy. We love being able to talk about this sport and interact with increasing numbers of fans from all around the world at Americans Footy on Twitter, where we react to all AFL happenings and where we've already had conversations with a number of fans on either side of the Pacific. My personal Twitter is at BenjaminHK01. You can find me at Castle Media, that's Castle with a K, and you can find my cat, Brian Harambe, named after the two bravest people I know, on Instagram, at Cat Named Brian. Unlike Brian Myers, Brian Harambe will never be omitted. As we alluded to before the ad break, St. Kilda and Port Adelaide was a mess. During our preview, I had said I wanted this game to be a complete shit show, and boy, was it. It was in Cairns, basically played in jungle conditions, oppressive humidity, nobody could get a grip on the ball, everyone dripping with sweat, and it was about as bad as I had hoped. St. Kilda, four goals, 18-42, defeated by Port Adelaide, five goals, 13-43. The scoreline does not reflect the team's ability nearly as much as it does the conditions, though with Max King playing for St. Kilda, it may not be as surprising. There was a, the play was largely on the ground just because nobody could keep a grip on the ball. And you could really tell that the AFL were having a hard time finding highlights for this one based on just how dull a lot of the mini tape ended up being. It seemed like they took an eternity to lead up to each goal, which makes sense when you consider, wait, there were only nine of them. 
The expected score, by the way, thanks to the Twitter account AFLX score, which is a product of the AFL lab, had the Saints winning 66.1 to 54.3, which I think is pretty appropriate. I mean, it was a slow, ugly grind of a game. And the Saints were overall the superior team, but obviously couldn't convert. Considering the teams combined for nine goals and 31 behinds, nobody was kicking well, but the Saints were especially bad, missing a few really easy shots that could have had them not pulling away, but at least in control in a game where they led for almost the entirety of it. They never trailed until the final 12 minutes. They had the lead with two and a half to go after... A Max King kick into the goal square deflected off Ryan Burton and hit the post, but then the power tied it on a Zach Butters behind after a heroic Seb Ross tackle on Connor Rosie prevented a go-ahead goal. Then Robbie Gray got it behind with 31 seconds left and put the game away with a mark. The broadcasters were saying the kick was nowhere near 15 meters. I thought it was in the realm of 15. The broadcasters said it was like six, which was a ridiculous exaggeration. I think it was a shorter kick than Liam Ryan to Josh Kennedy last year when the Eagles beat the Tigers for what it was worth. I didn't think it was that short. But what do you make of this game? What I make of it is that Karen's games are always a beautiful mess. There's really no time of year where there's not some sort of oppressive conditions for a game there. And it makes me wonder why teams decide to go there of all places. Same reason Mr. Krabs opened up a second Krusty Krab right next to the original one. Money! Having said that, I think in normal times this game would be played in Shanghai, which would have had better conditions. But a lot of people, a lot of Saints fans in particular, are asking the question of whether or not it's really worth it to sell games like this, considering the results. And the stat that really sticks with this one, that really drives it home that St. Kilda had more opportunities and could do as much with them, 10 straight behinds while they were ahead. But kicking one or two goals on those 10 kicks is not too much of an ask, even in the heat and humidity of far north Queensland. If there's a proper time of year to go there, it would probably be somewhere around July or August when it's the driest there. There isn't much measurable precipitation. They average over an inch of rain in each of those months, although they do still get eight or nine rainy days. Shows you that while there is precipitation still, it's nowhere near as heavy. And the average afternoon relative humidity, looking at the Wikipedia page with its very helpful climate chart, is a bit lower in those months as well. I remember they played there in round 23 and playing there somewhere in the last few weeks of the home and away season would make a lot more sense than this. The thing that obviously detracts from that is by that point, you're hoping to be really in the mix of things, either priming yourself for finals or fighting for those last spots. And that's when you want your big home crowds behind you. So I get playing those regional games earlier, but they obviously can come at quite the cost in terms of the elements in this case. Jack Sinclair got off to a nice start, but didn't end up scoring, finished with 23 disposals and 482 meters gained. Not a lot of standout individual stats because this game was so ugly, though Sebastian Ross had 31 disposals, four tackles, one of which was nearly a game-saving play, 752 meters gained. Ryan Burton, he did stand out to me with his 834 meters, 25 disposals, and nine marks. Burton played all last year, but was not someone that stood out to me at all. He has clearly taken another step this year. And what a time to do it when the club is down and looking to see who could really be their driving force going forward and still without a couple of their key pieces as well. 
It makes me excited to think about how Burton can continue impacting the game once Port are at full health and how he can impact it all over the ground because he's clearly capable going forward. He finished with 11 intercepts, Alir Alir with 14. It's nice to see him back right around full strength. Also of note, Dan Houston, seven marks and 676 meters gained. Ollie Wines, 27 disposals and a goal. The talk about this one, though, is so much more about the conditions and how silly it is to play a game in that sort of climate at this time of year with very little to gain from it. Maybe if you're a lesser team, it would make more sense because clearly these conditions are an equalizing factor. They don't seem to be something that favors one team over the other. The condition of the field stood out to me. I thought it was very poor. At least it looked that way on TV. The middle of the ground especially was really torn up. What's puzzling now is this is back-to-back wins for Port Adelaide where it's still hard to judge much. It's difficult to get a read on them. They host the Bulldogs next, who have been another maddeningly inconsistent team. Then they face North out in Tasmania. Maybe we'll know something more about them by then or by their Round 10 trip to Geelong, but... I think the story of this Port Adelaide season is still likely to be, it's not all doom and gloom, but some early losses did them in. Clearly, though, they're not as bad as it looked. This is a team where I think it's safe to say the jury's still out. Where I think they were able to take advantage, even though they didn't win at the stats, was a ground play near Rupp contests. They lost clearance 32-28, to but that was despite hitouts being 37-12, to thanks to Patty Ryder and Tom Campbell outdoing Sam Hayes. Being able to get those numbers that close to even despite that hit-out disadvantage is really impressive and a testament to the whole midfield unit for Port. Butters, Wines, Boak, Rosie, all factoring in there. One of the takeaways that I did have out of this game is that half of Port Adelaide's back six is really good with Burton and Houston in this form and O'Lear finally healthy. They're a better defensive team than I remember. Maybe that's because so much of the attention was on their forward group with how good Charlie Dixon's been. The one thing I took out of this game for St. Kilda was that almost every team is going to come out of games against them with a lot of injuries because they are just so physical and they tackle so hard. I think being wrapped up by Patty Ryder would be a nightmare, although I think being wrapped up by Bradley Hill is even worse. Maybe we're not talking injuries that take you out of the game. The only concern that we know of report in that regard being Miss Georgiatis' calf, but getting those smaller bumps and bruises that could definitely add up and affect your play for sure. Brad Hill only had three tackles, but he was everywhere. Ryder only had two. Jack Steele and Ben Patton led the way in tackles for the Saints. They are a very good tackling team in general. Excited to see how they match up and how eager they are to tackle against a team that can move as fluidly as Melbourne does next round. There isn't much more to analyze out of this game because it was such a mess. I will say, I wish these teams had another matchup in more normal conditions. There are a lot of games that I've seen where it's like, damn, I wish these teams could play each other again. For very sick and twisted reasons, I'd love to see North Melbourne face a fully healthy West Coast squad and see just how bad that would look compared to the Waffle side. I'd like to see Geelong and Brisbane at the Gabba, considering that they played at Cardinia. I'd like to see Gold Coast and Carlton, with Carlton at least knowing that Mark Pittnett wasn't going to play, even if they're going to be without him. As I've hammered home, and as we'll talk about in a few moments, it's different to prepare for a game without a player than to lose that player in the middle of a game. And I'll add one more to that wish they played again group. 
Sydney and Hawthorne, considering the complete turnaround that game in Launceston had. And also considering we don't know how many more matchups Buddy's going to have against the Hawks. We're going to talk plenty more about Buddy later, though. For now, we're going to steer our attention toward the Blues and the Kangaroos. Carlton 17-12-114, defeating North Melbourne 10-4-64. Usually we talk about Carlton having a down third quarter. This game, the third quarter, is where they took off. This game happened at the same time as the, I don't even know what to call the game in Cairns, but I was watching the delightful Cairns matchup. Benjamin, you were watching this, so take the reins. Tell me what I need to know about this game, because I watched brief snippets of it, but you watched it in real time. You watched it live. Give me your analysis about North Melbourne, because they hung in there and actually played a good second quarter, and then Carlton, unlike their usual form, actually played a really good third, winning the third quarter by 32. Yeah, North actually won that second quarter by nine. They came into that game without Aiden Core. He was initially labeled as being in protocols, but in fact, it's a non-COVID illness, so he should be back for when they travel to Optus Stadium to get crushed by the Dockers. That's fun. We saw some forward opportunities early for Jack Zeeble and Taron Thomas, and we also saw some flashes early from Callum Coleman-Jones, which was very nice. He got North Melbourne's first goal in just his second game this year. I said in the preview that it was a big chance for him to step up because it was a two-ruck setup as opposed to the three that they went with in round one when he only had a few touches. Uh, Coleman-Jones ended up with 20 hitouts, equaling Tom DeConey in that regard, while Todd Goldstein had 36. So as usual, North had no problem in that regard, but they couldn't create opportunities off of that. Center clearances, holy cow, 22 to 8, Carlton. I knew it was to their advantage. I didn't realize how much it was to their advantage. The Blues were moving very quickly and very well into the forward line. They were also rebounding well after losing possession, often forcing what I labeled as counter turnovers. But the Blues also did let some points go to North Melbourne because they focused too much on one or two targets. That allowed some players to get out the back for North. Overall, though, I was just very impressed with how Carlton were actually able to turn around their fortunes in the third quarter. I was really worried about how they would come out of halftime, but I wonder if getting that struggle behind them early was what they needed in order to properly adjust. In Ben McKay's absence, Harry ended up kicking four goals, too. I doubt they will ever play against each other at this point. Not the most accurate day for Carlton's key guys, I must say. Along with Mackay's 4-2, Charlie Kernow with three goals, four, missing some shots that he easily could have made. Really, this should have been more than a 50-point margin for the Blues, and you gotta wonder with how low their percent is to begin with if this could really come back to hurt them. And their midfield was firing on all cylinders. Patrick Cripps, unsurprisingly, leading the way. 35 disposals, 10 clearances. He had a goal and a couple behinds. Sam Walsh with 29 and four clearances. Matthew Kennedy, 24 disposals, 11 clearances. And Adam Chera, who's someone that I didn't expect to be less of a talking point this year, but I guess that's just how crowded that midfield is with talent. He ended up with 26 disposals, six clearances, and a goal. It seems like he's definitely starting to figure out where he belongs. And he belongs at times a bit more forward than some of the others. The other source of discussion in this game was the pretty solid fight that broke out late in the third quarter. Started with a 
lack of composure from Nick Larky, who jumped into Lewis Young, kind of gave him a shoulder bump to the ass. Basically just rammed into him. I think they call it a tunneling, which is not a term that I'd heard before. Maybe it's just another Australian slang that we're just not used to as Americans. There was a 50-meter penalty given in the initial scuffle, then it ended up turning into a 100-meter penalty after someone ran into the protected area. And of all people to score a goal off it, it was Jacob Wiedering with his first goal in more than four seasons. In the aftermath of the scuffle, Nick Larky ended up with his jumper basically torn off him, and he also ended up with a one-week suspension, where I really thought it should have been two, considering if Patty Ryder got two for the bump that he did, whether it wasn't intent, I think that the intent that Larky showed merited an extra week. Young was at his most vulnerable, completely off the ground and near the peak of his jump. Young ended up getting a one-match suspension himself for front-on-contact with Cameron Zerhart. That is being appealed. And Liam Stalker also copped a game for rough conduct in a head clash with Taron Thomas. Yup, he was injured and suspended in the same interaction. Both teams had to use the injury sub in this one. Pretty crappy situation for North. Aiden Core's illness let longtime North fan Miller Bergman make his AFL debut. He left before halftime with a shoulder injury and got replaced by Atu Bosanavulagi. Hopefully at some point Bergman gets another shot in the near future. Always cool when a kid gets to play for the team he grew up supporting. Sucks that his very first appearance, A, came on such short notice, and B, ended prematurely. Stalker also hurt his shoulder. I think that was from that interaction with Taron Thomas, so Matthew Cottrell came on there. Cottrell is just a really interesting player for me, uh, for just what he's able to do and how he likes to get into the action. Overall, in this one, Carlton had more entrances, so many more chances to capitalize. They ended up missing on a lot of those chances, and that's something that didn't hurt them in this one because it was against North. North themselves actually kicked pretty accurately, but they just couldn't really sustain any momentum. They can build from that second quarter, but they have to be willing to see a whole game through even when they're out of it, and it's clear that some of their players didn't do that. So that's definitely a point that David Noble can raise as he tries to build this team up to his design. Jason Horn Francis, another positive for North. He is the Round 7 Rising Star nominee with 20 disposals, 3 clearances, 4 inside 50s, and over 400 meters gained. Again, he's starting to look like he's placed himself well within North Melbourne structure, or maybe it's that North Melbourne are figuring out how to play around him, considering he ought to be their future. He did have to deal with Jack Salvani getting in his face and telling him, your team is shit, which, I mean, he's not wrong. Finished off the week with three Sunday games. First one between Collingwood and Gold Coast. This was the much-anticipated lone trip to the MCG all season for the Suns, and it did not go anywhere near as well as it did last year. They lost to the Pies by 25, Collingwood 17-13-115, to Gold Coast's 14-6-90. I want to revise something I said last week. I said that Stuart Dew's analysis and the broadcaster's analysis of Gold Coast's loss to Brisbane was way off. I said that the focus shouldn't have been on the Suns not making the most of their chances. It should have been on their defense being so bad that they had to make the most of their chances. I think at this point, we need to take Gold Coast's defense being bad as an established fact. And it's something that the Suns have to overcome with the tremendous offensive output because they offered absolutely no resistance whatsoever, giving up 45 points in the first quarter, 71 by halftime, 
They did make it interesting briefly in the third quarter before the Pies ended up going on another big run to get to 100 by the end of the quarter. Collingwood did let their foot off the gas a little bit in the second half, but statement made, Gold Coast's defense sucks. I just don't think they have a good game plan in the first place. Nick Revolt mentioned that the way they're set up, that allowed for the Pies to be far more efficient ended up at 57.7% inside 50, which is 11% above their average for the year thus far. They actually took fewer marks inside 50, but that's because they were operating so well on the handball and were also able to run through so easily. It was a family affair for Collingwood with the combination of Tyler Brown and Callum L. Brown, both playing pretty well, as well as Josh and Nick Dacos. Jack Ganovan once again stole the headlines with a ridiculous goal that should be the goal of the week winner, probably going to be a goal of the year candidate, with an insane goal that put them up 69-38. Nice. They actually didn't really score another goal after that for the rest of the half, but he picked the ball up along the boundary, cut around three defenders, though the last two made pretty lousy attempts to tackle, which is just kind of fitting for Gold Coast. It was a great goal, but Let's not gloss over the fact that the attempts to tackle Ginevan were terrible, which makes sense for a team that's been so lousy defensively. And another big talking point, you mentioned that the Suns can't afford to be inaccurate. And even though their scoring line 14-6, I'm left thinking that Levi Casbold left 20 points on the board by kicking four goals four. It's like the commentary cursed him by saying that he had never kicked five. His last three shots, he had the chance to do that for the first time, and they all sailed wide one way or another, when even getting one of those could have been so important, when even getting one of those could have done so much for them. There was one in particular, after one of many good kicks from Jack Lacocious, who's probably, no surprise, was one of the sons who impressed me the most, along with Tuke Miller. Had Casbold kicked this, it would have been 81-74 with seven and a half left in the third quarter. Instead, there wasn't an immediate goal off it for Collingwood, but they did end up getting the next one thanks to Aiden Begg and Jack Ginevan, and that miss from Casbolt really proved the final inflection point in the contest. Credit to Aiden Begg for some of what he was able to do as well. He was not good in the ruck contests at all, but that's to be expected against Jared Witz, especially when he doesn't have a comparable frame to Witz or Chole. But Begg had some good things going off the ground and was a better kick than I expected from a Ruckman. So that's definitely something off which he can build. And he's only 19, so he's probably not done growing physically either. Stat lines of note, Tuke Miller finished with a pair of goals, 36 disposals, 6 tackles, 500 meters gained, and 10 score involvements. I will note that both of his goals were in the latter half of the fourth quarter, but his presence was an important factor for Gold Coast throughout, and it really ended up being a reward for his efforts that he got that pair of goals. Patrick Lipinski had been quieted over the last few weeks, but he's been on a solid roll in the last couple of games. This one, 30 disposals, 12 score involvements. Lipinski had 20 disposals and 8 score involvements by halftime. I think probably the best magpie throughout the game, though, was Jack Crisp who ended up with 28 disposals, 8 marks, 7 clearances, 6 tackles, 499 meters gained, and a goal too. There was hardly there was hardly a stretch of a few minutes where you didn't hear his name or see him get involved in some way or another. 
Final total on the hitouts, as you mentioned, Wits dominated. He had 44 of them, and the Suns won that 50-17, to 17, although clearances were far closer, 36-33, also in Gold Coast's favor. Collingwood actually were plus three in the stoppage clearances, and that was where Crisp made his impact. Overall, both teams can take positives with this one. They can definitely build from this. Who knows where this game could have gone had Casbolt gotten five or six goals. Could have done had they cleaned up their kicking inside 50. That was the big problem for them early. They had plenty of chances. They had plenty of entries. But they seemed to struggle with the shorter kicks once they got closer to goal. And with the talent that they do have in their forward half, I think that's something that a good coaching staff can remedy. Emphasis on a good coaching staff. I don't think there are a lot of positives for the Suns, frankly. Most of their games, I saw someone whose defense I really liked, even if it was just one of their guys in the back 50. I did not see that yesterday. Also, Isaac Rankin was limited to eight touches. And yet, Gold Coast were as close as they were without his involvement. I don't know. I just think the Suns are what they are. I think with a healthy pin that they probably don't win that Carlton game. And it's just sad. This team has the potential to be something. I would say it's time to write them off, but when I write a team off, they come back and do something wild the very next week. Although I don't think the SCG is going to be a place for that to happen, especially with the Swans, spoiler alert, coming off a loss of their own. Moving ahead, there was brief overlap between both the first and second game and the second and third game. That second game was one that I really focused on. It was the Bulldogs winning the 1,000th game played at Marvel Stadium by 32 over the Bombers, 16-7-103 to 10-11-71. And this was really a game of two very different phases. You had a first half where Essendon actually seemed like they had a breakthrough defensively actually seemed to be playing pretty well. I like what Jordan Ridley was doing, racking up a few intercepts. However, they went more than 31 and a half minutes of clock time, 47 minutes overall between goals. Went into halftime down by 14 despite having one more scoring shot. The expected score said they should have been down by about 10. They weren't so much squandering chances as they were getting stuck with kicks from tough angles. But between that and the way they had played against Collingwood last week, you thought, all right, maybe they've started to find something defensively. Maybe they're turning a corner. And then they gave up seven goals in the third, and Bulldogs forwards kept leaking out behind them, and they just couldn't stop them at all. And that was that. They ended the third quarter trailing by 36 and never really had much of a shot after that. It was disappointing because this was actually a game that started with some promise from an Essendon standpoint. But it certainly didn't end up that way. The Bulldogs finished with a 66-39 to advantage in inside 50s. I thought Essendon's defenders didn't do too poor of a job when their backs were against the wall. But that sequence of the third where they kept letting guys leak out behind them was pretty bad. It was more that they just got it stuck to them in the midfield. I also noticed from the Bulldog side of things... A quietly dominant game for Caleb Daniel, who finished with 32 disposals, 7 intercepts, 532 meters gained. First time we've really talked about him, at least in a few weeks, and maybe all season for being a prominent defender. Also had 7 intercepts and 10 contested possessions, so an efficient user despite being in some difficult situations. Bailey Smith finally got a goal, which is great because it complemented his overall play. There was one moment in the first quarter that really stood out to me where he was basically sitting down 
and managed to kick a ball from midfield to the forward 50. The pure strength in his legs is incredible, and it's got to be frustrating for him to not be a more accurate kick on goal when he's got so much ability to kick from the midfield to the forward 50. It's kind of like a reverse Ryan Myers. Basically, if you combine Bailey Smith's goal kicking and Ryan Myers kicking anywhere else on the field, you'd have the worst player ever. And if you combine Bailey Smith's midfield kicking and Ryan Myers kicking from set shots, you'd have one of the best players in the league. I don't think I would ever be able to wrap my head around Bailey Smith and his unique kicking style, but Smith not being the greatest set shot means that he's much better served staying where he is rather than going forward like Bontempelli has. And even though Bont didn't overwhelm in terms of scoring, just a goal for him, he was very versatile in his forward spot. I was impressed by some of his tackling. He had five of those. And he, of course, remained active in stoppages where he had a joint game-high seven clearances. Stat-wise, it wasn't a massive game for Bontempelli, but I thought he played really well anytime the game came to him. Tom Liberatore, by the way, 24 disposals. Anytime he was involved, he seemed sharp. Robbie Bacone got his first two career goals. Biggest guy stat-wise was Josh Dunkley with his 29 disposals, six tackles and two goals. Bailey Dale gained 724 meters. Pretty nice showing from him. Darcy Parrish didn't have as many possessions as last week, finished with 32. But I thought he had a much better game in terms of quality over quantity. And Mason Redmond actually played pretty well. And he was actually even deployed in the back half some as an actual defenseman instead of as kind of an offensive defender. He finished with 588 meters gained as well as 29 disposals. He's one of the guys, as Essendon probably considers overhauling their defense, he's one of the guys that I would definitely consider keeping around. I thought this was a game where the Bulldogs showed that they don't need any one player to truly dominate when they have most of their guys operating in their normal capacity. In fact, they had a couple who did less than usual. Aaron Naughton was pretty quiet, only finished with one behind. Cody Waitman struggled early, though he did end up with two goals. He was one of the ones that got involved in those sequences where they were leaking out behind. Mitch Wallace got a couple early goals. Great to see Fluffball succeed, though he did get subbed out late for Josh Shackey. Final score was misleading. They won by 32, but led by as much as 50. Good way for the Bulldogs to cleanse themselves after a pretty crappy loss the week before. I think overall they're on the right track. They still haven't shown consistency on a week-to-week basis, but I like where they're heading. This Friday night game against Port Adelaide has more and more intrigue to it. And then they follow that up with another Friday game against Collingwood. So fun times ahead. They're actually slated for a couple more Friday games coming in June as well, taking on both Geelong and Hawthorne. So Friday nights at Marvel Stadium will be a common fixture, although this coming Friday they'll be at the Adelaide Oval, the site of their preliminary final demolition of the power from last year. This game did provide more answers about the Bulldogs than it did questions, although their fate is still definitely unwritten, that there's much more to be gleaned from them. I'm left with more questions about Essendon in terms of whether their defensive flash of the pan can be replicated over a longer stretch, whether players are being positioned properly. I know a lot of people are saying that Ben Hobbs was misused, largely playing out of the midfield, despite his play there being the reason that he's gotten his debut. Well, it's hard to play a guy in the proper position when he died, you know, considering the black and white photo they posted of him. Rest in peace. I'm not questioning that 1-6 is reflective of the team's trajectory within this season, but I'm wondering if it's reflective of their trajectory longer term, whether last year was a high point for them under Rutten, 
or whether this is just a slump year, considering what injuries they still do have. They're still without Jones. They're still without Tippa. And we don't know when exactly they're going to get either of them back. But it's not where those two play that they have the biggest issues. Peter Wright has made up for them in some respects with his scoring. He scored four goals in this one. Additionally, Nick Cox hurt his ankle and was replaced by Dylan Scheel, who was a surprising omission. Scheel came in during halftime. I thought Cox had played decently well up to that point. In the Bombers' defense, their schedule has been an absolute bitch so far. They've already played games against the top three in the current ladder, and of the five teams that they play twice, four of them are currently in the top nine. I think there's pieces there to, even if this ends up being a down year compared to last season, the Bombers could, if they do this right, make this a really productive and beneficial year big picture. What they need to do is look at this season and say, we had some bad luck with injuries after having pretty good fortune last year. We had a few weaknesses exposed. Our young core is still pretty solid, but we need to patch things up defensively, bring in a couple guys there, reassess our scheme on defense, and we'll be on our way. And I think this could end up being a year if they take it as a proper wake-up call without completely reinventing the wheel. This could be a year that serves them very well with some very important lessons down the road. Especially if they're able to pick up a win within this next six-round stretch. None of them are particularly easy. They got Hawthorne at Marvel. They go to Sydney, Richmond at the G, at Port Adelaide, and then Carlton and St. Kilda. There's potential there for them to go 1-12, and and if they do at that point, I think it's probably time to uncover the red button. But I think that if they can pick up one or two wins in that stretch, I'll say two definitely, then they can definitely build upward. Two of those very strong teams that the Bombers have to play twice are the Swans and the Lions, who met up for the final game of the round, a matchup that somehow wasn't nationally televised on seven. That was the Bulldogs-Bombers game. Instead, this one was on Fox footy, though it did give us a chance to see three-time premiership player Alistair Lynch outside of Queensland making the trip to New South Wales. And he was joined by another three-time premiership player in the commentary. Jack Revolt, having played on Friday, was part of the Fox footy team for this one. And he wasn't half bad. I've been very impressed with how some of the current players have done on commentary. That's something that usually doesn't happen in other sports, save for... The only one I can really think of off the top of my head is Adam Wainwright, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, for those of you unfamiliar, doing MLB playoff commentary. I remember they sometimes had Adam Jones doing studio work as well. Oh, yeah, and Chris Archer is another one who was pretty good on camera, but during a live broadcast... The only one who I can think of as being a really seamless fit was Wainwright. And I'll also throw in Greg Olson in the NFL. I believe he had one during his bye week one time. Also a very talented rapper, although it would be hard to find any player that was better with commentary than Nick Natanui. While he's out injured, I'd love to hear from him more. But anyway, Sydney, Brisbane, take it from here. Sydney, 13-11-89, defeated by Brisbane, 17-11-113. The only reason it was that close was because some guy named Lance took matters into his own hands and kicked six goals straight. Only the fourth game in which Buddy has kicked six goals and lost. But I was impressed by so much from Brisbane. They were very good in cutting off a lot of Sydney's opportunities throughout. They were really good in intercept marks early on. And throughout the second half, especially, I was amazed at just how good their forward half pressure was. 
that was really where Charlie Cameron impressed me. He had three goals on just nine touches, and he created a couple of those from his tackling work. He had five of those. This was a game that could really be split into four distinct phases, or maybe two phases with an intermission during one of those phases. First quarter was kind of a feeling out period where Sydney was the more dominant team but couldn't convert much. Teams ended up tied 9-9 despite an 18-10 to Swans advantage in the inside 50s. Then the Lions really turned it up in a 40-7, to six-goal second quarter. Buddy came out of the halftime break on fire. His fourth goal of the game and 1,011th of his career cut the lead to three, less than six minutes into the third quarter. But the Lions regained control from there, went up by 35 before a Callum Mills goal after the third quarter siren. So you could either look at Franklin's sequence as being act three out of four, or Brisbane's dominant run play as just a big second act with a buddy intermission in there. Hope that breakdown wasn't quite so confusing. What definitely wasn't confusing was the amount of dominant performances the Lions got. A goal, 37 disposals, 9 tackles, 11 clearances, 9 score involvements, 5 intercepts for Lockie Neal. I noticed that some of Neal's best work is these quick and short handballs that he creates out of stoppages, and that's the driving force behind him having such high clearance numbers, even though he often doesn't have the ball for that long during those passages. Also want to note that 26 of his 38 possessions were contested, and he still operated at over two-thirds efficiency. It seems like he can do no wrong, Lockie Neal, especially considering that he's also doing very well kicking for goal, which is something that I didn't notice for him in his Brownlow season two years ago. Dane Zorko playing more forward led to two goals and three behinds from the captain. Darcy Fort made history by kicking his 12th career goal without a behind, so he wasn't quite as impressive as the aforementioned players. I also thought Cam Rayner played really well, finished with three goals and two behinds. Callum Achi had a goal and was really involved in a lot of key sequences as well. Achi showed that he's able to kick quite long, forgot he had that in him, but ended up kicking a ball probably over 70 meters to set up one of Rayner's three goals. Rayner was another one who, along with Charlie, was really good in terms of the aforementioned forward half pressure. There's been an evolution as Cam Rayner has returned from his injury. First, you had him kind of regaining his land legs. Then you saw him start to play a more dominant game. And now you're seeing him not only play well, but get back into that spirit, that upbeat sort of presence that makes him so fun to watch. He once again looks like a guy who's having fun on the field. And when he's really operating at his fullest and doing that, unless it's against your team, it just makes you smile. Whether you're a Lions fan or a nonpartisan viewer like I was, although I definitely prefer the Lions to the Swans, but not like I had much of a stake in this game either way. And hell, he was smiling part of the time, too. Going back to Achi's kick that he bombed to Rainer, he was smiling as he marked that in the goal square. And I think that just about sums up just how well Rayner has come back and just how fun he is to see operate. In our preview, we talked about players that we were watching out for in particular. I was keen on seeing how Hugh McCluggage would fare in this one. Ended up with 28 disposals, four score involvements, four clearances, three tackles. Only had one behind, but was definitely that second guy after Neil in the midfield, and he's a damn good support for that main act. Meanwhile, Daniel Rich was his typical good kick out of the halfback role. 19 of his 20 possessions were kicks, and he also had eight marks and four score involvements to his name. 
I had circled Isaac Heaney, who did finish with three goals, though one of them was very late, well after the game had been decided. I also mentioned Dane Rampey, who did almost nothing other than a poor decision that set up Daniel McStay for the only Lions goal of the first quarter. Uh, I mentioned McCluggage, you mentioned McStay. All three mixed, those two and Lincoln McCarthy combined on a goal in the second quarter, but that's never happened before. Swan's defense definitely missed Patty McCartan. Speaking of mix, Brisbane got by just fine even after losing Joe Danaher to a shoulder injury. He came off a couple times in the second quarter and then ended up getting replaced. While they definitely missed his ability to handle pack marks, they did just fine, especially because of Charlie Cameron's pressure in the forward 50. They were able to get resourceful and adapt very quickly, which, as we've mentioned before, mostly in regards to Mark Pitnett, but in reference to a lot of players, adjusting to an injury mid-game is totally different than preparing for that injury beforehand. And that the Lions were able to figure this out on the fly is a really good reflection on Chris Fagan and on their entire team as they won at the SCG for the first time since the final game of the 2009 regular season. With that, it's time to go to the nominees for the Mark and Goal of the Week. I was shocked by the Mark of the Week selections, or rather a non-selection, as you'll see in a bit. Firstly, there was Toby Green with a pack mark over Jordan Butts. Kind of a key forward moment for someone who is much shorter than any key forward you'd expect to do that. Then Levi Casbold had a really good one over Pat Lipinski. Of course, he couldn't convert off it because that's how it was for him and the Suns. And the third nominee was Will Hayward, who asked tonight on Twitter, do birds get cold? He took a hanger over Kadeen Coleman. My winner for this round is Brody Smith. Smith took a ridiculous mark over Harry Perriman, ended up knocking himself out, got subbed out. He did post online after that. He seems to be fine. Obviously, though, will be out next week, considering the concussion protocol. I don't know how that one wasn't picked unless the only thing I can think of would be that the league decided we don't want to glorify a play where a guy got injured, especially when it's a head injury. Of the three that did make it, who's your pick? I just think none of them were particularly clean, but I think Casbold getting over Lipinski in a denser part of the field compared to Hayward and actually getting into the opponent to take the mark makes his the most impressive of the three. Though credit to Green for doing something that a player of his size normally wouldn't be able to do. I'll rank them Casbolt as my winner, Green second, Hayward third, but I would agree Brody Smith should have won it. Goal of the week. First, you got Nathan O'Driscoll kicking from the left edge right around the 50-meter line. It bounced once in the goal square and went in while Josh Tracy and Zach Tui tugged each other. I thought they could have given a free to the Cats and called holding on Tracy, although it was probably both ways. Ah, just like Michael Crabtree and Jimmy Smith, go Ravens. And likewise, there was no call made on that. So I guess by that standard, it was well officiated. And like that one, the purple team got the better of it. Second nominee, Jack Ginnivan slipping through three defenders and then scoring. That's your obvious winner. Third was the buddy dribbler from the left side near the boundary. Cool angle, cool geometry, but we all know Ginnivan's the winner here. The other two are nowhere near on that level. Good plays. I think O'Driscoll comes in a distant second with Buddy third. How would you rank them? I agree with your rankings, Ginnivan, then O'Driscoll, then Franklin. Though I have a feeling that 
if they revealed the voting results for the round between the three, which I think would be really fascinating, that Buddy might get over O'Driscoll just because he's Buddy. That would actually be really cool if they did that. Maybe they could do that at the end of the season once all the awards were handed out on Brownlow night, release the results of all those fan votes. I'd like to see that as well. Again, though, Ginevan wins this one. No contest. There are going to be nine more contests in round eight. Hard to believe we are already crossing the one-third mark of this season. Uh, uh, how many lot. over? I, I just want to do the math to make sure, yeah. Because seven out of 21 is a third. Eight out of 22 is more than a third. Seven out of 22 is obviously less than a third. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting. Oh, wait. Got a whole bunch of overlaps for this next round. An interesting double Friday night fixture. Two pairs of directly conflicting games on Saturday with Giants and Cats sandwiched between them, as I alluded to earlier. And then glad that the final two games, as intriguing as they are, get time to themselves on Sunday. The afternoon contest being Melbourne and St. Kilda. Have no idea what to think of the Saints after this past week. And then Carlson and Adelaide closing out the round. But we'll get all into that on our 20th episode, which should be coming in just a few days. Until then, if you're looking for more from us, which you should be, because we're great, you can find us on Twitter at AmericansFooty. You can find me personally at Castle Media. You can find my cat, Grian Harambe, on Instagram as cat named Grian. And you can find me at BenjaminHK01. And you can find me physically, if you really want to do that for some reason, in Berkeley, stressing out about getting my last exams and performances done with before graduation. Don't forget, speak from your heart because you need to have courage. We just love the footy.